Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, serves as the proper conclusion for chapter 1. The emphasis Moses places on the seventh day in these verses indicates that we readers should recognize that creation is not actually complete until the seventh day. While God's creative acts occupy the first six days, the seventh day is the essential completion of creation week. Follow along as I read Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The seventh day is marked off as uniquely important as the proper conclusion of the narrative, in part by the absence of what was noted on each of the first six days. These verses do not include a reference to the evening and morning of the seventh day. Also, on each of the first six days, the paragraph concludes with a label numbering the day, but reference to the seventh day is repeated three times for special emphasis. Thus, while the sixth day is the true climax of the narrative of creation week, the seventh day is its important conclusion. Therefore, we cannot rightly understand the significance of creation week without reference to the seventh day. It is our task this morning to draw out what that significance precisely is. Why does God tell us about his rest on the seventh day of creation week? As we seek to answer that question, we must draw in the larger biblical framework, so we'll be exploring a lot of scripture outside of Genesis again this morning. Moreover, as I'm sure you're aware, we will be entering into more controversy. The significance of the seventh day and God's rest in connection with the Sabbath remains an issue that divides churches. For example, We have Seventh-day Baptist churches just down the street that gather together on Saturday rather than on Sunday. They do this because they believe that the Bible tells them to do so. And part of the biblical testimony they would appeal to is God's rest on the seventh day in creation week. It's important for us to understand why we believe what we believe and why we do what we do as a church. And we must, in humility allow for for some difference of interpretation on this point. It's not only the Seventh-day Baptist perspective that we must in due course disagree with this morning. We will seek to wrestle with the biblical complexity of this issue this morning, but I hope by the end of our time that we'll have gained greater clarity and understanding of how the the Bible lays this all out for us. So we've got the verses in Genesis in front of us. Let's begin focusing our attention on what the text says, and then we'll move outward from the seventh day on to the Sabbath day, and we'll consider the significance of rest as biblically defined. Verse 1 simply indicates the completion of God's creative work. It was finished on the sixth day, finished by creating humanity as God's image, which included commissioning them as his vice-regents with royal authority to subdue and exercise dominion over earth and all its other inhabitants. In verse 2, Moses repeats the statement of conclusion that God finished his work on the seventh day. Now, many other English versions have instead by the seventh day, and that's surely what's intended. God does not create on the seventh day. Instead, as Moses states next, God rested. However, this is not the normal word for rest. Instead, it is the Hebrew verb Shabbat with one B. From this verb would develop the noun that we translate Sabbath, Shabbat with two Bs. The verb means simply to cease or to stop. Thus, God ceased his creation work on the seventh day. So as the creation week, as the creation uh, seventh day dawns, God ceases. He doesn't speak to create, and he doesn't form or fashion anything. The seventh day is a day of cessation. Now, it's correct to assert that this cessation, this stoppage, this ceasing from work does indicate that God rested. Thus, we turn briefly to Exodus 20.11, the first commentary on the seventh day given by 
Moses, the same author writing here in Genesis. In Exodus 20.11, we read, For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Here, Moses uses the ordinary Hebrew word for rest, meaning to settle down and relax. One more text in Exodus gives further illumination to what God does on the seventh day. Consider Exodus 31.17. In six days, Yahweh made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. The word translated rested is the same word used in Genesis 2.2, the word for ceasing. Thus, God stopped creating and was refreshed. The word translated refreshed appears in Sabbath legislation for the people of Israel, where it clearly refers to physical refreshment. In its only other occurrence outside of Sabbath legislation and here, in 2 Samuel 16, 14, the word is used to describe David and his men on the run from Absalom, who stop running, exhausted, and refresh themselves, probably by drinking water from the Jordan River. The word literally depicts the idea of exhaling, and so by extension, catching one's breath, or alternatively, sighing in satisfaction. (sighs) Prior to the evening of the sixth day, God assessed everything he had made, and he assessed it all as very good. I could imagine him sighing with satisfaction on the seventh day basking in the very goodness of his completed creation, even putting his feet up, figuratively speaking. Actually, this idea of putting his feet up may have further relevance in discussing the biblical significance of God's resting on the seventh day. Many students of Scripture have recognized various parallels between the narrative of God's creation of the universe in Genesis 1 and 2 and the construction of the tabernacle and the temple in later Scripture. The best explicit biblical grounding for this idea comes in Isaiah 66. Consider what the Lord says in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says Yahweh, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares Yahweh. In this poetic statement, the Lord depicts himself as sitting on his throne, which is heaven, with a capital H, and his feet stretched out and relaxing upon a footstool, which is this planet. And then he raises the question for the Jewish exiles as they hope to rebuild a temple for him in Jerusalem after the Babylonians had destroyed the one Solomon built, and he refers to the possibility of an earthly temple serving as his resting place. In verse 2, then, he refers to heaven and earth as the things he himself made. In other words, he already built himself a temple, which he calls his resting place, heaven and earth combined. Heaven, thus, is depicted in terms of the heavenly holy of holies, And earth is depicted in terms of the outer court of the temple. In light of this passage, it's possible to read the references to God ceasing, resting, and being refreshed as his being properly enthroned in his heavenly temple while extending his own presence outward to this earth as well. Thus, Genesis 1 and 2 depicts God creating a place where he might dwell with his people. God's rest on the seventh day is his enthronement as supreme king over the universe. But he rests on the seventh day in part because he has just delegated rule over this planet to his vice regents, humanity. He can rest because humanity has been commissioned to rule on his behalf. We'll see more evidence of this creation temple connection in Genesis 2 when we observe how Moses characterizes humanity as priestly as well as royal. But to quote Jason Derucci, for God, the culmination of the original creation week was not a rest of laziness, but of sovereignty, wherein the great king, having established the sacred space of his kingdom, sat enthroned, enjoying peace with all he had made. Now, as we return to Genesis 2, it's not quite true to say God didn't do anything on the seventh day, and it's not quite true 
to say that God doesn't speak on the seventh day. In Genesis 2-3, we read, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Blessing is a verbal act. In Genesis 1, on day 5 of creation week, God blessed the creatures of the sea, and His blessing included verbal commands, which I understand to mean that He equipped them to fulfill these commands, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas. The blessing probably extends also to the flying creatures as well, since God speaks of the birds multiplying in the same sentence. Then on day six, God had blessed humanity, equipping them to fulfill the commands to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. But as far as I can tell, this is the only time in Scripture God is said to bless a particular day. In light of that fact, we should be quite reserved in the conclusions we draw about what it means for God to bless the seventh day. Thus, the way God blessed the seventh day is connected to the next verb. God made the seventh day holy. That is to say, he sanctified it. Thus, God blessed the seventh day by sanctifying or consecrating or setting it apart. The seventh day, in one sense, is already uniquely set apart because it's the first day God doesn't perform any act of creating. It's different than the other days. But certainly this comment intends something more. The seventh day of creation week has been set apart as holy by the Creator. What does this actually communicate? This is where we need to be careful not to overinterpret. I don't think we should assume that this means every seventh day from that day forward is now set apart as holy. The text doesn't say every seventh day from the beginning of creation until the end of the world is sanctified. This is God's own Sabbath. There is nothing in this text that suggests or even hints that the seventh day should be treated differently by people. Thus, I don't see any evidence in this text that suggests we should view the Sabbath as some kind of creation ordinance. To treat this passage as though it communicated or even implies a universal law for all of humanity or some kind of permanent statute for people is, I believe, a gross misreading of this passage. We'll come back to the way that the Mosaic Law looks back to this as a model or a pattern or a grounding for the Sabbath commandment for the people of Israel. But for now, it's important to recognize, as Professor John Lonsma writes, the creation Sabbath is God's own, and it falls within an unrepeatable week of permanent effects. But the fact that God blesses that day, a day within the created world, and makes that day holy, further suggests a goal toward which creation moves. Thus, the importance of Moses telling his readers that God rested on the seventh day of creation week, if it implies anything, implies that God does intend for humans to share in his rest. This means that God's resting on the seventh day, God's blessing and sanctifying the seventh day, points toward the eschatological goal of creation. However, as Dr. Lonsma points out, that movement toward the goal is disrupted by the act of disobedience that follows in Genesis 2.4 to 3.24. Rather than work leading to rest, there is a curse. Interestingly, if the seventh day has God resting from creating and making things, Immediately after the rebellion of humanity, we will again read of him making something. God will make clothes for Adam, for sinful Adam and sinful Eve. God created the universe and its inhabitants in six days, climaxing with the creation of Adam and Eve on the sixth day. God rested on the seventh day. Adam and Eve rebel against God so that human sin interrupts God's rest. God, in response, gets back to work, making something that enables humanity to continue. The goal of humanity possibly sharing in God's rest has been postponed. The next stage of the story of the Sabbath is the introduction of the Sabbath to the people of Israel. Let me draw your attention to two interesting facts that might be important for the larger topic at hand. 
First, as far as we can tell from the book of Genesis, no one rests on the seventh day. Ancient cultures show no evidence of anyone considering any importance to regularly setting, regularly resting from work every seven days. This might be reflective of the reality that Sabbath should not be considered some kind of creation ordinance. And this also suggests that we shouldn't extrapolate from this a message about the importance of the need for humans to have a regular rhythm of work and rest. Now, please don't misunderstand me at this point. I am certainly not against a rhythm of work and rest. And I do believe biblical wisdom undergirds resting from work with some regularity. But I don't believe there is a moral imperative for how that needs to look for all cultures and all times, or even for all of God's people. A second interesting fact to notice is that for Adam and Eve, the seventh day of creation week is not the seventh day. Adam and Eve were created on the morning of the sixth day of creation week. Now, perhaps God told them to measure time with the recognition that their first day was actually day six, But if he didn't, then they'd begin counting time as that first night passes. It may be that what we see happening in Genesis 3 occurs on the seventh day. As God is resting from his work of creation, he comes to take a restful stroll in the garden. And he must then confront his vice-regents for their failure to subdue and exercise dominion over all the beasts of the field and for their direct disobedience to the only prohibition he had specifically communicated to them. But for Adam and Eve, this may only have been their second day on the planet, their second day alive. The fact that they really were only born yesterday doesn't excuse them from their awful act of rebellion. As the story continues, we do see historical evidence that Israel's seven-day week was a unique innovation in the ancient world, something that wasn't passed down in any traditional way prior to God's revelation to them in the wilderness before they arrived at Mount Sinai. And it's to that revelation that we must now turn. We need to see the first stage in the development of the Sabbath in Exodus 16, where the Sabbath is presented to the Israelites as a kind of test. Exodus 16 begins with Israelites complaining, particularly about the food supply in the wilderness. They think they want to go back to Egypt, and they quickly accuse Moses of dragging them out in the wilderness only to kill them. The Lord's response to this begins in verses 4 and 5. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. The test comes particularly in relationship to the sixth and seventh day. It happens just as Yahweh said it would. On the sixth day, after this pronouncement, they gathered twice as much bread as they had done the previous five days. The leaders of the people reported this amazing reality to Moses, and we pick up the story in verse 23. Moses said to them, This is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. They take the bread and prepare enough for their families to eat on the sixth day and on the seventh day. Then on the seventh day, in verses 25 and 26, Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Notice a few things here. First, the phrase, a day of solemn rest, translates a unique Hebrew term, Shabbaton. Essentially, this word is the noun Shabbat turned into an adjective. Thus, it basically means tomorrow is to be characterized by stopping, ceasing, in, other, in this context, it means that the seventh day is a day when you won't go back gather bread. Second, Moses describes the day as a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. It's a Sabbath, a cessation, a stoppage, a set apart for Yahweh. They must not gather bread for Yahweh's sake. And you may recall the rest of the story. Remember that Yahweh said this was a test for the Israelites. So how'd they do? Verse 27 says... 
On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. So not so good, right? Yahweh responds with clear anger, and in his verbal correction of the people through Moses, he elaborates on the significance of this day. Check out verses 28 and 29. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will you, and that's a plural you, how long will y'all refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. Now, verse 29 could be Moses' elaboration on Yahweh's exclamation in verse 28. But in any case, the seventh day cessation of gathering is characterized here as a gift from Yahweh to the people of Israel. Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Then he specifies that all the people need to simply remain in their tents all day, probably specifically meaning don't leave your tent with the intention of gathering food. Finally, we read in verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day echoing the words from Genesis 2. They ceased on the seventh day. Israel failed this initial test of the Sabbath. Nevertheless, the test would continue for 40 years. Even before we read the story of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness in the book of Numbers, Exodus 16.35 already indicates that their wilderness wandering was prolonged, though it doesn't tell us why. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Thus, for 40 years, more than 2,000 Sabbaths would occur. They'd have more than 2,000 days when God supplied double manna and more than 2,000 Sabbath days when God provided no manna. This was meant to build their faith. They could trust Him to provide their daily bread. The Sabbath was initially a test to provide an opportunity for the people to both trust and obey their life-giving, bread-supplying Lord. This initial failure does not bode well. Nevertheless, the Sabbath will be reiterated, enshrined in the Ten Commandments of the Mosaic Law on Mount Sinai. So let's briefly consider the Sabbath commandment, the longest and perhaps most controversial of the Ten Commandments. Turn to Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. On the seventh day of creation week, God blessed the seventh day, and here Moses explicitly refers to it as the Sabbath day. God blessed the seventh day to sanctify it. His blessing sanctified the seventh day of creation week. Now, the people of Israel are commanded to remember the Sabbath day, literally, remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. So God sanctified the seventh day of creation week. Now, Israel is being commanded to sanctify the seventh day of every week. In doing so, they are imitating God in what He did uniquely during creation week. But they are not clearly continuing something God was doing all along. As though every seventh day throughout history, in all places, among all peoples, God was somehow sanctifying. This is a unique gift for the people of Israel. This is a, this, that means the rest of humanity should not be held responsible for not obeying this command. But what does it mean for Israel then to remember the Sabbath day. I think this harks back to what we just read in Exodus 16. Before they arrived at Mount Sinai, before the covenant relationship was officially ratified, they had already been given the Sabbath day. Thus, they remember it as an official aspect of their covenant relationship with the Lord in order to sanctify it. 
And they sanctify the day by obeying the following commands. First, don't miss the first command in verse 9. Work for six days. The word translated labor refers to manual labor of various kinds, agricultural, construction, trade, commerce, as well as domestic chores like cleaning, cooking, making clothes. The Sabbath day cannot be properly remembered if the people were idle the other six days of the week. The commandment is directed particularly to the head of the household, to the father of the family. But the commandment to do no work on the Sabbath day is specifically extended to sons, daughters, household slaves, livestock, and foreign visitors. The wife is not explicitly mentioned, perhaps because her unity with her husband is assumed. Since they are one flesh, the Lord's command to the husband is implicitly directed to the wife as well except where distinct responsibilities are specified throughout the law. The seventh day is identified again as a Sabbath to Yahweh, a cessation for Yahweh's sake. When the commandment is first reiterated after this point in Exodus 23.12, the text uses all three terms for rest that we've seen thus far. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Shabbat, cease that your ox and your donkey may rest, may have rest, the normal word for rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. You shall stop working on the seventh day. This will provide rest even for your beasts of burden, and your slaves and foreign visitors get to enjoy a sigh of satisfaction with you. This does indeed mirror God's rest on the seventh day of creation week. Thus, to cease from working on the seventh day, the people of Israel will rest as they acknowledge God and His sovereign rule over their lives. They can relinquish control over the seventh day, trusting His provision for them. Rather than using the seventh day for their own purposes, it is a Sabbath to Yahweh. They rest for His sake. As Christians, we have to pause here and remind ourselves that this is part of the Mosaic Covenant. This is part of the law that Christians are not under. There is no evidence in the Bible that the Ten Commandments is to be treated as a unique summary of moral law. There is no evidence in the Bible that the Ten Commandments were somehow more authoritative than other parts of the Mosaic Law. The New Testament certainly never refers to the Ten Commandments as a unified whole, as though it was considered to be a specialized section in the Mosaic Law. Certainly, the commands here given to Israel summarize their obligations before Yahweh in the covenant relationship He had established with them. Thus, the Sabbath commandment does not bind us Christians to do all our work on six days and to cease from labors on the seventh day each week. We are not under the law. Nevertheless, there is an application for us from this commandment well expressed by commentator Victor Hamilton, who writes, God was not a workaholic. Don't you be one either, says this commandment. If the one who will not grow tired or weary, Isaiah 40, 28, rested on the seventh day, should not his followers follow in his footsteps? As the Apostle Paul will indicate, Christians have the freedom to choose how and when they might set one day apart from the others. More on that later. For our next stop on the journey to understand the Sabbath, we need to dip into Leviticus, where we'll see the Sabbath as a communal celebration. In Leviticus 23, Moses discusses the nature of the appointed times of Israel, the calendar holidays, the festivals. In verse 3, we read, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to Yahweh in all your dwelling places. This is the only holy convocation where everyone is commanded to stay home. This legislation fills the rest day with celebratory significance. There might be a hint of this in the language of being refreshed. The sigh of satisfaction is meant to be an expression of delight. For God, the seventh day of creation week was surely a day He stopped creating, but He also put up His feet 
in satisfied repose, celebrating over his very good creation. Likewise, the people of Israel were to stop working each week on the seventh day and as families in homes to enjoy the fruits of the week's labor. The rest day was not to be a boring do-nothing day. In other words, it was a day for family fun. Let's return to Exodus to see another very important aspect of the Sabbath, its character as sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Consider Exodus 31, 12 to 17. And Yahweh said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you, are, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. How does the Sabbath function as a sign? In Exodus 31.13, the people's keeping Yahweh's Sabbaths will indicate to the people that Yahweh sanctifies the people. Think through this with me. On the seventh day of creation week, Yahweh sanctified that seventh day. In the Sabbath commandment, he called for Israel to sanctify the seventh day each week, setting it apart by ceasing from work, remembering their redemption from slavery, and celebrating in their homes. Now, Yahweh says that doing this each week will remind them of the truth that he has set them apart as his own special people. The Sabbath day is holy for the people, and the Lord here presses on them the perpetual, repeated nature of this observance. Note the repetition of the phrase, throughout your generations, and the important phrase, a covenant forever. Then in verse 17, the Sabbath day is described as a sign forever. Now let me make a brief assertion about this phrase, a covenant forever. I won't take the time to explain this more fully. Sometimes this phrase is translated as a perpetual covenant or even an eternal covenant. The covenants associated with Noah, Abraham, and David are referred to with this phrase. But the Mosaic covenant as a whole is not. However, certain aspects of the Mosaic covenant are described with this unique phrase. So what are we to make of this? Well, when we remember that all the covenants are connected with each other, and they build on each other all the way up until the fulfillment of all of them in the new covenant established by Jesus' death, we can see the perpetual or permanent nature of these covenants or of these aspects of the Mosaic covenant as simply pointing toward their fulfillment. They will be brought to eternal fulfillment, eternal completion in Jesus Christ, all of them and all aspects of them. Eternal is sometimes the correct translation of this term, but most of the time it doesn't describe something that's going to last absolutely forever. Instead, it focuses on the permanence of something, which may in fact have a termination at some point in the future. Now, this is important as we consider the nature of the fulfillment of the Sabbath in Jesus in just a few minutes. Exodus 31 is simply pointing to the people's Sabbath-keeping as the perpetual, ongoing sign of the Mosaic Covenant that communicates a weekly reminder to them and to the world that God has set them apart as His special holy people based on the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. When that covenant comes to its proper fulfillment, the sign will no longer be required, or it could be changed. Notice that a second sign significance is given to the Sabbath in verse 17. Their resting on the seventh day each week will signify to them that God created the universe in six days. That is, he worked for six days and then he ceased working on the seventh day and was refreshed. Thus, ceasing work on the Sabbath was never intended 
to be some burdensome reality for the people of Israel. It was meant to be a fun and meaningful day that reminded them of their identity as God's holy people and of God's action in creating the universe in six days and resting on the seventh day. Now recall how I suggested that God's ceasing work on that seventh day and the great emphasis put on that fact in Genesis 2 indicated that this rest was the goal of creation. In Israel's resting on the seventh day each week, they were to be reminded of that great goal of creation. Thus, their rest on the seventh day each week should have stirred in them the hope of sharing in God's Sabbath rest in the future. Now, the question could be raised at this point in the story. Would Israel's work for God as His servant lead to the fulfillment of that goal? that they might enter into his Sabbath rest? Or would they rebel, as Adam did? We already know the answer. God offered them rest in the promised land, and indeed he gave them rest in the promised land through Joshua, and then later through Solomon. Even as they enjoyed an aspect of rest in the promised land, they were still to keep the Sabbath commandment each week, pointing forward to a greater rest to come. But this brings us to the New Testament, or almost. One reason Israel was exiled from the land was because they refused to obey the Sabbath legislation. The prophets repeatedly pointed to their profaning the Sabbath, treating it as a common day. Thus, God sent the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and the temple, God's resting place on earth, where He had come to dwell with His people. The Jews were exiled from the land. God, in His mercy brought them back to the land, and enabled them to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. But he never entered that rebuilt temple as his resting place. In the face of their continued rebellion, after he had brought them back to the land, God stopped sending them prophets. For about 400 years, they suffered a famine of God's word. Over the course of that time, the Jewish leaders developed a host of rules intended to prevent the Jewish people from ever coming close to breaking the Sabbath commandment again. One rabbinic tradition even specifically suggested that if the people of Israel could keep one Sabbath day perfectly, then the Lord would send the Messiah. Largely, the Jewish leaders' efforts involved seeking to define carefully and scrupulously what counted as work. Eventually, as codified in the Mishnah, there were 39 categories of activities specified as work forbidden on the Sabbath day. Jesus, the Sabbath Lord butted heads with these Jewish leaders. Frequently, Jesus publicly and purposely healed people on the Sabbath day, sometimes right in front of the Jewish leaders in the synagogues. On one occasion, he and his disciples walked through a grain field, and the disciples plucked some heads of grain and wanted an afternoon snack, it seems. The Pharisees were apparently stalking them and called their action into question, believing that they were doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath In other words, the plucking of heads of grain and rubbing them between their fingers to get to the edible kernel, the Pharisees considered to be be work, apparently some form of gleaning. Jesus takes them to task with a somewhat obscure story about how David seemed to do what is unlawful with his followers and yet was considered guiltless. But it's the climactic statement that I want to focus our attention on. In Mark 2, 27 and 28, we read, And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Some folks want to overinterpret the first statement. I don't think Jesus is referring to God's resting on the seventh day of creation week, as though God's original blessing and sanctifying of that seventh day was somehow for humanity. Genesis does not indicate that at all. Rather, Jesus is simply observing in relation to the Mosaic law how the Sabbath commandment was consistently presented as a gift to the people of Israel and as being intended to benefit the people of Israel. Jesus views the way the Pharisees have developed all these extra restrictions on the Sabbath day as treating people as though they were designed, people were designed simply to obey restrictions. In other words, the Pharisees have treated God's Sabbath gift as though people 
were to spend the Sabbath day doing things they didn't want to do or not doing things they did want to do in order to keep God placated. God gave the Sabbath to Israel so that they would know Him, trust Him, rest in Him, be satisfied by Him, and remember all the good He's done for them. It's hard to do any of that when you're counting steps to make sure you don't walk too far or when you're stumbling over a chair you tipped over by accident but are not allowed to pick it up and move it because that might be work. But it's the second thing that Jesus said that would have shocked and enraged the Pharisees. Jesus claims to be Sabbath Lord. Now he identifies himself as the Son of Man here, which the Pharisees might not have initially recognized for what it really was. But in Mark's Gospel, the last time they heard Jesus use this term, he had claimed that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. They probably don't yet recognize the connection Jesus is making with the one like a Son of Man from the vision of Daniel chapter 7. But surely that's why Jesus uses the title. His claim here of being Sabbath Lord is to say that He has the right to define what Sabbath keeping looks like, to say uh, that He owns it, governs it, and defines its terms. He governs the Sabbath day. He understands what rest really means. And He, in fact, offers Sabbath rest to all who will come to Him. In Matthew's Gospel, right before this story about Jesus' disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath, we read these familiar words in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The gentle and lowly Sabbath Lord promises rest to heavily burdened workers. Ultimately, He calls people to Himself as the source of rest. Jesus embodies the Sabbath. Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. He calls people weighed down by guilt, burdened by attempting to work to please God, to come to Him. God rested on the seventh day of creation week. Jesus rested on the seventh day of Passion Week. God finished His work of creation on the sixth day. Jesus cried out on the cross on the sixth day, It is finished. It is on this basis, His sacrificial death, that He can offer Sabbath rest to all who will come to Him. The Son of Man, who is the Sabbath Lord, grants forgiveness of sins and eternal rest to those who rest in Him. The life He calls us to, the easy yoke, the light burden He calls believers to is a life of restful work. As John Wansma puts it, Sabbath is henceforth not calendar, but Christ. And as commentator Alan Ross says, the believer enters into a life of Sabbath rest from works and embarks on a life of holiness in that rest. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, on what we call Sunday. Does that mean the Sabbath has changed from the seventh day to the first day? I don't think Scripture teaches that anywhere or implies it with all due respect to the Westminster Confession of Faith. As one writer says, there is no command to keep Sunday special or to invest it with any Sabbath-like characteristics. The New Testament suggests that Christians did begin to gather together on the first day of the week. But the book of Acts also indicates that many of them met daily, not just weekly. There does seem to be something special about their meeting on Sunday, as it became known as the Lord's Day. But I still see no biblical reason to suggest that Sunday should be treated as some kind of Christian Sabbath. One author suggests the Lord's Day is the first day, the eighth day, the third day, any and all of these, but it is not the seventh day. And therefore, it is not the Sabbath day. So what are the implications of this? Well, I appreciate how commentator Douglas Moo draws out implications from Romans 14, 5, and 6, where Paul writes, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day 
observes it in honor of the Lord. We could translate that for Yahweh's sake. Dr. Mu believes that Paul likely has in mind Jewish Christians who wanted to continue ceasing from work on the Sabbath day. And he applies Paul's instruction to us plainly like this, quoting Dr. Mu. Christians are not required to rest on Sunday. Taking a job that requires one to work on Sunday, washing one's car on Sunday, playing basketball on Sunday, none is prohibited to us. Yet, Christians also have the liberty to rest on Sunday if they choose. I think that such a rest, while not mandated, is physically and spiritually wise. The Apostle's point here suggests that we must not make universal laws regarding which day Christians must gather for worship or which day Christians should stop working. And there is no place for us to look down our noses in judgment on those who either gather to worship Jesus on Saturday or who want to refer to Sunday as the Christian Sabbath. The timing of corporate worship and the pattern of rest from work are both areas of Christian freedom and biblical wisdom. After all, in the earliest days of Christianity, all Christians had to work on Sunday. Our earliest evidence of the earliest church gatherings in the Roman Empire indicate that Christians gathered on the first day of the week in the evenings after a full day's work. In Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The cessation from work on the Sabbath day for the people of Israel was a shadow that pointed forward to future substantive realities. Likewise, God's resting on the seventh day of creation week pointed forward to a future reality. And the substance of those future realities comes in Christ. He grants rest to all who trust in Him. And as the author of Hebrews indicates, we still look forward to entering a Sabbath rest in the future. Rest is pitched as the conclusion of redemption in Hebrews. As Genesis 1-2 pitches it as the conclusion of creation, so the author of the Hebrews pitches it as the conclusion of redemption. As the author of Hebrews expounds Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11, a warning the psalmist had confronted the Jews of his day with, indicating that as the Israelites in the wilderness did not enter God's ultimate resting place, so the Jews of his day, the psalmist's day, if they refused to respond to God's word, they would not enter God's ultimate resting place either. Likewise, the author of Hebrews addresses his church audience and warns strongly that if those who profess to be Christians, those who are members of churches, refuse to trust and obey God's Word, they also will not enter God's ultimate resting place. The author refers repeatedly to God's rest. And the Greek word translated rest actually refers to a resting place, which is why he speaks of entering it. In Hebrews 4.3, the author gives us the key for entering God's rest. He says... For we who have believed enter that rest. Notice that believers have already or are right now entering that resting place. But then in verse 4, the author quotes Genesis 2-2 and then combines it with the warning from Psalm 95-11 where God swore that those who reject His word will not enter His resting place. Though we earlier mentioned how an aspect of rest was granted to the Israelites through Joshua in the promised land, the author of Hebrews points to that specifically and indicates that that was not the ultimate resting place God ultimately intended for His people. The land of Canaan was a foreshadowing of a greater place of rest to come. More on that next week. Thus, the author here climaxes his argument in this section in verses 9-11, through Hebrews 4, 9-11. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The word translated Sabbath rest is a unique word that actually refers to Sabbath celebration 
This is not simply the negative idea of an absence of work. Rather, this word emphasizes the joyful delight in resting from one's labors. So, the author of the Hebrews is telling us that the goal of creation will finally be reached. The new creation will be characterized by eternal, festive celebration. In Genesis 2, God entered His newly created resting place, the heavenly holy of holies, with His footstool on the earth. And He planned for His human creation to finish its work and then join Him in His resting place for a restful, joyful celebration in eternal fellowship with and worship of the Creator. Human rebellion seemed to interrupt this process, but the eternal Son of God left the heavenly resting place, came into this world as a Jewish man under the Mosaic law, kept the Sabbath commandment perfectly and truly, though not to the satisfaction of the Pharisees in light of their man-made traditions. Then he died on the cross on the sixth day of the week, Good Friday, and rested in his grave on the Sabbath. And finally, arose victorious on the first day of a new week, inaugurating a new creation. From there, He ascended to His throne, returning to the heavenly resting place, from which He freely offers genuine rest to sinners who will come to Him for rest. We Christians do not live under the Mosaic Law. We don't relate to God on the basis of the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, including the Ten Commandments. And in the New Covenant, there is no command to rest one day in seven, and there is no command to set aside one particular day each week for rest or corporate worship. However, however, there is instruction for us to regularly gather together, and there is good warrant for doing so on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. We continue to live as finite humans, even as Christians. We need to understand our created limits as a good gift of God. So it's wise and godly to incorporate rest into our work regularly. But there is no biblical mandate for how we must do that. This is supposed to be an area of freedom, not law. In addition, we must ensure that our work or our rest and recreation does not crowd out our worship, our corporate worship. So in quoting Dr. Moo earlier, I affirm that taking a job that requires one to work on Sunday is not necessarily in itself sinful. But if taking such a job conflicts with or limits one's ability to gather for corporate worship regularly, then one should consider whether taking that job is either foolish or indeed sinful. Likewise, parents need to consider carefully whether extracurricular activities for their children are going to regularly provide an obstacle to gathering for corporate worship. The sin, in either case, will not be because of breaking the Sabbath command but rather the sin will be seen in deprioritizing corporate worship, where one would ordinarily come to hear God's Word proclaimed. And it's the refusal to hear and heed God's Word that the author of Hebrews is so concerned about. The rejection of God's Word is what results in someone failing to enter God's ultimate resting place. And so, you're all here today, And I'm so glad you're hearing God's Word this morning. And you're here regularly, so keep it up. Don't get distracted. Don't let other priorities pull you away from this gathering. This is important. This is where you primarily hear God's Word and receive God's Word. This is where you receive encouragement from your brothers and sisters to keep running the race that's been set before you. We're supposed to be encouraging each other every day, strengthening each other so that we don't give in to the kinds of sin and temptation that pulls us away or to cave under the pressure of suffering that we all face in this world. We need this day. And so I hope you'll freely, joyfully choose to make it your priority for the rest of your life.
whether that be here in this place or wherever you might gather. God's word is clear on this point. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us such a gift that you show us Jesus. Help us to follow his lead and how he defines the terms of rest. Help us to realize the truth that we can indeed experience this rest that we're talking about every day. The rest that Jesus offers is not one day in seven. And it's not just the rest that we will enter in eternity in the new creation. The rest that Jesus offers is for us to experience 24-7 as we trust in him. Help us to understand what that means and how that can change the way we work, change the way we rest, change the way we play, and help us to enjoy the abundant life that he's granted to us. Help us to lean into it and live it out to the fullest, enjoying the many multitude of created gifts in this world. Help us to pour into our relationships with other people in our family, in our neighborhoods, in our world around us, and to show them what following Jesus looks like and to summon them to join up, to follow him too, and to show them that he really does grant rest so that we can stop fretting about the difficulties of life. We can stop carrying the weights of guilt and pressure that we all so easily want to pick up. It's like Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress couldn't shake that backpack loose. You have done the work to cut the strings, to let that thing go. And so we thank you that we can live freely and joyfully. We pray that you would stir us up to that experientially, that we would see it, live it, feel it more consistently in our lives. And we thank you that that's not dependent on our efforts. We thank you that the Holy Spirit lives in us to empower us to keep moving forward and to experience this paradoxical tension of restful work. We want to glorify you with our lives. Help us to wisely measure out our time, make the most of it, redeem it as it were, and devote it all to you. Certainly not just one in seven, but all of it goes to you. You have claimed us. We are your set-apart, sanctified people. Help us to live like it. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got a few announcements, so hang tight.